There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Dangerous Minds, brought to you by Offscript. I'm Ed Stafford, the first person to walk the length of the Amazon River. I've always been fascinated by adventure travel. But is it an addictive, somewhat selfish escape, or could it be a powerful vessel for self-development? In this series, I'll be talking to some of the people I admire the most about why they do it, what they've learned, and what impact it has had on their lives. What does drive people to endure hardship while leaving those that they love to cope on their own at home? And is such risk-taking a reckless indulgence, or could it be a simple crucible in which one can resolve mental health issues and help find emotional balance in life. Joe Simpson is an English mountaineer, author and motivational speaker. While climbing in Peru in 1985, he suffered severe injuries and was lost and suspected dead after falling into a crevasse. But against all odds, he survived and managed to crawl back to his base camp. He described the ordeal in his best-selling 1988 book, Touching the Void, that has sold over a million copies and was adapted into a 2003 film which was described by The Guardian as the most successful documentary in British cinema history. It grossed an extraordinary $13 million in the first 20 weeks. Joe, hello mate, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm Irish and I'm Scottish, I'm not English. Your Wikipedia page is wrong, then, isn't it? Yeah, of course. I don't you write are. The Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I wrote mine, mate. Mate, uh, just how are you at the moment? I mean, I know you. You are you in the house that you built? Yeah, built the house five years ago. Jesus, won't do that again. But anyway, yeah, all's good here. Just for the sake of the listeners um, who don't know why we know each other, basically, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna explain. We met each other when we spent five weeks together, didn't we, in uh, Myanmar? And um, we were working with the BBC and essentially we were retracing the steps of your father, who was a chindit, who was operating behind enemy lines, fighting against the Japanese in the war, um, which I'm going to go into in detail sort of later on in the in the journey. But um, my opening question was, why on earth did you pick me to um, to do that journey with you? Uh, I'm I'm not sure that I picked you, but I I did. It it wasn't like that. I think they were they were looking for someone and. you came up and I just said, yes, definitely. And that was the end of the argument. So it wasn't that I said, you know, but as soon as you, you see, I didn't even know you, you were available or anything. So, but as soon as I thought, right, okay, we've got X forces, survivalists, you know, this is going to work. I'd seen a load of your programs, uh, you know, I knew what you're like. And I was thinking, oh, shit, can I get on with this guy? But then, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it's funny, isn't it? How TV people fluff you because, the way they put it to me was that Joe Simpson has insisted on having you, Ed, to do this show. <laughs> but, yes, you know, you get well, manipulated think, in this world. No, I think I don't, that's a bit unfair. I think, I think that they were, like, casting around. I, I won't say who they 
other people they suggested you know and i was thinking oh for christ's sake you know like you know social brains here and so <laughs> you know when you came up i thought straight away yeah well this works you know because i knew about you and i knew what you did and so after that i was saying yes definitely ed forgot to get ed because you know this guy knows his shit and so that was it so it was sort of partial fluff all right, all right. Well, mate, it was it was it, from from my perspective, it's been amazing. It's just it's just to get to know the person who obviously I knew your story beforehand. I'd I'd watched your film. I'd, I've even read your book. I think maybe I just watched the film and imagined that I'd read the book. Um, I think most of the listeners will know the Touching the Void um, story, but for the sake of the younger generation, because it's it is now thirty five years ago, wasn't it? That the the, the accident. I'm sure you get bored of recounting the story, but are you able to do a sort of um, a mini recap of, of what actually happened? Yeah, I can do. Actually, the film was on uh, this week on Channel 4. Yeah, I watched it, mate. It was fucking ace. Well, a friend, a friend who is his minor, he's, he's a minor idiot, he sort of... Uh, he sort of WhatsApp me and said, "Hey Joe, what do they do with cameras and makeup nowadays? Because you look so much younger." <laughs> I said, we did that twenty years ago. <laughs> so it is hard to believe that it actually happened thirty-five years ago. Do you know what? It's, it's lasted the test of time very well, hasn't it? I was looking at. I expected it to watch it and think, you know what? These recreation where they've remocked up all of the accidents, it's just going to look clunky and old. But it didn't actually. Well, the other thing is that it was very much. Kevin McDonald, who who was the director, the famous director, um, neither neither of whom Simon and I got on with, you know, uh, but he he was a great director, and that use of reconstruction, ironically, we were long listed for the Oscars, and then we were kicked out because it had reconstruction in it, which daft because Kevin's film or the Void film. Uh, there's so much drama docs now done with reconstruction. It was like leading the way. And now when you look back and you look at the way it was filmed, now you look at other drama docs and have always got the same sort of headshot to camera, then the reconstruction. So it's quite strange that. But Okay, right. 1985, Simon Yates was 21, I was 25. Uh, we were, even though we were young, we were very experienced climbers. We were members of the L1 climbing group. We'd climbed some of the hardest routes in the Alps in winter and summer. We decided to go to Peru our first trips to Greater Ranges, and to try and do a new route, which is what we wanted to do. We didn't want to follow everybody up the same sort of route. And we found the west face of Sula Grand, four and a half thousand foot face up a 21,000 foot mountain. And off we went. And um, we knew it was a dangerous mountain. We knew that there was a lot of rock fall. We knew that there were all sorts of problems. And we decided to go Alpine style, which is just two people. You climb together. You don't fix ropes. You don't stop camps and go up and down the mountain it was just alpine style two packs on your back go the advantage of that is speed and speed is safety in the mountains the less time you spent in front of avalanches extreme cold else you'd all that obviously the drawback is if you screw up you die because there's no mountain rescue there's nobody there it's highly technical probably people couldn't climb up to you anyway the only person we had was a young richard Hawking, a young trekker who we bumped into in Lima and said, come and join us. And he knew nothing about mountaineering. So we knew that was where we were going to climb it. We climbed it in two and a half days, uh, reached the summit. The route has never been completely repeated. It was repeated by Carlos Buda and Mike Price 17 years later, but they didn't reach the summit. Anyway, we thought, right, cracked it. And we've got to now come down from the summit. And a lot of people forget, actually, that 80% of accidents happen on the way down. When you've reached the summit, you haven't achieved anything. You've just put yourself as far away from 
safety as you possibly can. And as we were coming down the ridge the next day, the North Ridge, which was in horrendous conditions, I fell when some ice broke away and I fell about 15 feet. I landed on my right leg, hyperextended the leg. My lower leg was driven through my femur. I had a very severe, what's called a tibial plateau fracture, where a great chunk comes off your tibia, destroyed the knee and broke the ankle and the heel of the same leg. And at that point, we were at 19,000 feet. And I thought, right, we're dead. Because, you know, to get <coughs> a person with a badly broken leg off a mountain in Scotland would take a 10 or 12 person mountain rescue team, minimum. And we were at 19,000 feet. And I, I had this endless wait waiting for Simon to turn up, uh, trying to think of every book, every story in a pub, everything I'd ever known, every mountain expose I had to try and work a way out of this. And I couldn't find one. And I thought he's going to have to leave me. Simon got to me and asked me if I was OK. And I, <laughs> I thought of lying, but I didn't. And I just said, look, I broke my leg. And our relationship sort of changed instantly from being equal leaders to being a victim and, a, you know, and a rescuer what we did in in short is uh we we managed to get to a part of the face looked down the west face and it ran down to the glacier we wanted to go into and it was a heavily laden with powder snow we couldn't find ice or rock for anchors so we tied our two ropes together we had two 150 foot 50 meter ropes so now we had a 300 foot rope with a knot in the middle Simon tied to one end and I tied to the other. And then Simon would take the rope from my harness and clip it through a friction device, an abcell device. We'd call it a stitch plate. We'd dig a hole in the snow that Simon would sit in because we couldn't find solid anchors. I'd lie down and Simon would lower me. Now, he would lower me as fast as he could because what he was sitting in was starting to collapse under the weight of the both of us. Of course, this was agony for me because I was just jabbing my leg in as I went down. Now, after 50 metres, the knot joining the two ropes would come up and it wouldn't go through his friction device. So he'd stop, tug the rope a couple of times, I'd stand up my good leg, put slack in the system, he'd unclip the rope, put the knot on the other side, clip in, I'd lie down, he'd start lowering and I'd start screaming again. So <laughs> suddenly... So I'm sorry for laughing, but it, I mean, it's... <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the, it's, it's that. I mean, that is worth noting. That's an extraordinary way of rescuing someone off a mountain, isn't it? You know, you won't read it in a mountaineering uh, no. rescue thing. You know, and it's, no. you know, because uh, hey, I've got a safe anchor. You can't do that. And you say, look, mate, I'm going to die. <laughs> We've got to try this. You know, so you, you when when a situation like this happens, you've got to start thinking out of the box. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, my my view has always been uh, when something really serious happens. There's two things you've got to do, which is uh, stay calm and start thinking and be prepared to ask some serious questions about what you can do, what you can't do, where you can go, what decisions you're going to make. Because from then on, everything you do is down to the decisions that you make. And you can't make good decisions if you're panicking. Even if you make bad decisions, you're you're making some sort of progress. Um, Anyway, the point was this suddenly I was 300 feet down. And this incredibly painful system seemed to have worked. So while Simon down climbed to me, I started digging another big hole for him to sit in. He'd sit in it, clip to the rope, I'd lie down, he'd lower, I'd scream. And I was screaming, I'm not telling you, because the pain was just unbelievable. And we were in a, a big storm at this point. And to give you an idea of what's going on, the ambient air temperature is about minus 20. And with a 45-mile, 50-mile-an-hour wind, that brings the wind chill down to about minus 50. 
I was getting really cold and I wasn't working so hard. Simon was working really hard, so, but he had already developed frostbite in his fingers and my fingers were now getting frostbitten. So that the first joints in your fingers were blue-black, which meant that if you held a wine bottle, you could sort of hold it. You couldn't feel it. You couldn't feel what your grip strength was. You know, And bear in mind that Simon was lowering me at this time without anchors, with hands like that, and he was trying to control a rope that's 8.5 millimetres, about that thick, with hands like that. So what Simon was doing was just the most extraordinarily brave thing. You know, unbelievable, really, because people often say I was brave, which is bull. I mean, bravery requires a choice. I didn't have a choice. You know, I just had to endure. Simon had a choice. He could have left me and down climbed. So he was doing something... Uh, that was massively putting his life at risk to save mine. And I, I tell you, it was it was a humbling experience witnessing someone else doing that for you. Because, you know, you've got a question, would I do that? The roles are reversed. Or would I just bugger off on my own? You know. Anyway, Simon, this this went on all from 4 o'clock in the afternoon till about 9.30 at night. And suddenly the ground steepened. I was screaming at Simon. Um, he couldn't see or hear me. And suddenly I went off this ice cliff that we didn't know was there. And Simon let the rope go. I went down about 25 feet. But that meant I was spinning in space. I couldn't touch the ice cliff. I was, I was nailed, basically. Simon thought, I've got to get the full body weight off my rope and started lowering me. And I went about another 25 feet and stopped. And I knew then that the knot in the two ropes had come up. It's jammed in his friction device. Because I'm hanging in space, we can't get weight off the rope. We're locked into the system. We're both going to die. So that that was that. And and I hung there for about an hour and a half. And I was getting so cold. I can't tell you how cold I was getting. And and uh, I, I had had enough, really. I was knackered. And I was I was beaten up and whatever. And I, I couldn't climb up the rope. You can't climb hand, about, hand up a rope. You know, only Sylvester Stallone can do that. And Simon, eventually, because he was incrementally being pulled forward out of this collapsing seat that he was in, this powder snow seat. And at the last minute, he remembered that in the top pocket of his rucksack, he had a pen knife, and it was, it was my knife, actually. And very calmly, he made the rope sure that the rope was clear of his legs. He wasn't entangled with anything. He looked at everything. He just cut the rope. And uh, he didn't know what, where I was. Uh, he didn't know whether I was hanging one foot off the ground, you know, or, or even 50 feet up above a steep slope is survivable. Just talk to ski jumpers. They do it all the time. He just knew that he was 300 foot off the deck and he was going to go. And so he cut the rope. And that night, uh, this was about 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, he dug a snow cave. He was exhausted, frostbitten, dehydrated, and had, had a bad feeling <laughs> about what happened. Uh, in the morning, he came down. Um, he was forced way to the right by this ice cliff, and he put the, half of his rope onto a uh, a rock that he found, an abseil down. He was looking at this enormous bergschrund, this crevasse that runs along the face of the mountain, covered in places, uncovered in others. It just went down. And he was screaming. There was no sign or sight of me. And he got to the glacier, looked to see if I'd dug a snow cave anywhere. He knew I was dead. So he started now, he'd left his rope behind. He started now trying to get down a mile and a half of glacier, very nasty, heavily crevassed glacier, and then six and a half miles of moraines down to the base camp which he got to about midday and met Richard. Richard was coming up to rescue us, apparently. But uh, And uh, Simon, 
yeah. He had a first aid kit and some chocolate in his rucksack. So I have no some idea. Some Kendall what, Mint cake. Yeah, yeah Kendall Mint cake. That would help. So he'd have got on the first glass he'd ever seen and immediately fallen down a crevasse and died. And anyway, Simon, I think, was thinking, you know, maybe I should tell a bit of a white lie here. Uh, but when Richard asked what happened, he just told him everything about the lowering and whatever. And they went down to base camp. It was storming by then. What happened to me that night was I was hanging on the rope. Suddenly I was free falling and I fell about 70 feet, hit the roof of this crevasse, which is about 15 feet of powder snow, broke through, fell about another 60 or 70 feet, smashed into a collapsed ice bridge that was jamming the walls of the crevasse and I came to a stop. Got my ice screw into the wall, tied myself on, looked around and thought, Jesus, Simon's, uh, Simon's dead. He's gone wagging off the cliff. He's gone through the foot. So I'll pull on the rope. When it gets tight, I'll use prosthetic slings and stuff to climb up the rope. And, of course, the rope came down. It was frayed, exploded, and it meant Simon had cut the rope, which was a bit of a bummer. Uh, but um, I, part of me really just thought, good on you, mate. Well done. You're still in the game. You know, I just thought, well, there's no point just hanging on pointlessly and dying because he would have died. Well, if he's still alive, he's in the game. And if he's in the game, it's good for me. You know, and I thought, well, maybe he'll be looking for me in the dark. So I spent all night shouting his name. And crevasses are quite frightening places to be in on your own. And by 9.30 in the morning, gets light about six or seven, something like that. I can't remember now, six, I think. But I knew with absolute certainty that... uh, Simon was either dead or he thought I was dead because, one, he would have been up because he was as thirsty as I was. We'd had no water the previous night, the previous day, and the previous night. You're supposed to drink four litres of water a day at altitude because our gas had run out. Big mistake. Anyway, so I just sat there and I thought, right, well, if he's left without contacting me, he must think I'm dead. There's no other explanation. And if he thinks I'm dead... He's not going to come back with a rescue party because you don't go and rescue corpses. So I sat there and I I tried to climb the wall of the crevasse, but it was sort of gently overhanging and I only had one leg and I couldn't do it. And I knew if I stayed where I was, um, I'd die. But you don't die uh, of a broken leg. You die slowly of dehydration and hypothermia and I had a good sleeping bag and I was going to eat a lot of snow and and I knew I'd probably stay alive four or five days maybe longer but you'd be in this twilight world you'd be it'd be a nightmare you'd be mad by the time you died the one thing I hadn't done is think about going deeper and and so in the end I couldn't see anything on either side and I just dropped my rope down it was tied to the one ice screw I had I put a I didn't put a knot in the end of the rope so if I got to the end of the rope with my frostbitten hands if there's nothing down there I wouldn't hold the rope. It would go through my friction device and I'd fall. And it was a way of killing myself without actually having to make a decision. <laughs> and then I just started abseiling off. And it was the, um, I think it was the toughest decision I've ever made in my life. And the scariest, because I, I, I didn't know what was down there. I didn't know if there was a way out. I just knew that it's the only option I hadn't explored. It's counterintuitive. You know, if you're buried alive, you know, dig yourself deeper. But, well, why not? You know, uh, 60, 70 feet further down, uh, the crevasse narrowed. It wasn't the bottom, but it was choked. I, and I would crawl across it. I could feel things breaking away, so I knew it continued below me. But about 30 metres away, the walls were completely choked from avalanches pouring in. And I knew that if I could climb that about 150 feet, 160 feet, I could get out. 
So I climbed that, which is, I say that I climbed it, it was just agony because the way I fractured my leg, the bones have gone through each other. That's a straight leg. So when you hop up, you basically land on it. So, but eventually I got out of the crevasse, um, giggling my head off. And then I looked around, I saw blue rope hanging down and I saw tracks leading away down the glacier. And, and that, then I knew I was completely on my own because I knew that Simon had gone and he wasn't coming back. And I sort of half fell to the glacier and I started thinking about it. And I thought, you know, I've got no food, I've got no water, I'm frostbitten, I'm badly injured. And I've got this huge distance to go. I mean, I, I didn't even know whether I could get across a crevasse glacier with a lot of Simon's tracks already windblown and not there. But then you had this like six and a half miles of broken moraines. And by moraines, I mean, you know, rocks the size of double-decker bus, scree, you know, ice shoots. This is These rocks on top of the glacier. You've probably been on this sort of ground. It's horrendous ground, even with two legs. And I was smashed up. And I, uh, I just thought I can't possibly make this distance. Um, and I just thought, sod it, I'll give it a go. So I started crawling on the glacier. And very quickly, I kept stopping, and my hands were getting really cold. They're frostbitten, but they're getting worse. And so I kept, because they were in the snow, I was pushing myself along. I kept taking my gloves off, trying to warm my hands up. And I remember thinking, five minutes has gone by. I'd look at this cheap, crappy watch I had, and 45 minutes had gone by. Now, I don't know where this time was going. But I was aware enough to, to realise this, this uh, being alone like this is like a sort of sensory deprivation and your temporal and spatial awareness starts shifting. And my sense of time was going all, all over the place, you know. So I thought, Christ, right, OK. And I'd look at a crevasse and I'd go, right, I've got to get there in 20 minutes. And off I'd go. And if I got there in 18 minutes, I was made up. I got there in 22, I was absolutely livid, furious. And I carried on doing this all that day. Um, and I didn't realise, and I, it was only many, many years later when I thought about it, um, this wasn't some sort of survival mechanism that I'd been taught or, or anything like that. This was, I think it was a psychological awareness of the bigger picture. I couldn't deal with the bigger picture, which, you know, just you're not going to make this distance. I could deal with 20 minutes. and I could have a competition with myself. I thought I could do that. And I, I, I'd get furious about it if I couldn't win. And that night, I dug a snow cave and got into it. I was in a really bad state. I was still on the glacier. Anyway, the next day, I managed to get off the glacier and started crawling on the rocks, which is basically hopping because you can't crawl, which is just murderously painful. And at three in the morning, on the fourth day since seeing Simon, so I crawled for three and a half days without food and water. Uh, I was somewhere in the dark, completely off my head, uh, hallucinating, and suddenly I saw these light beams coming out, and this tent lit up, and it looked like a spaceship. I thought it was a spaceship, actually. And the voices and Simon and Rich were there, and they found me. And uh, and then I had to ride a mule three hours later uh, for two days, and then I had to get a pickup truck for 18 hours, and then I got to the hospital. So that's how not to go climbing. <laughs> Mate, I bet if you tell that story at dinner parties, everyone's like fucking silent afterwards. It's like, how, the, how do you follow that? It is the most extraordinary tale. It really is. It's a weird one. It's a weird one. I do a lot of corporate talking, you know, where they call it motivational talking, and I hate the motivational. I just don't believe it, you know. But I just tell a story because it's entertaining. 
and, and a lot of them have never really heard much about mountaineering. They're just completely gobsmacked. And but the truth of it is, you know, and they they find it well. Everybody finds it very positive. It's not positive at all. Ninety nine percent of the time, you fall down a crevasse without a rope, you're dead. Don't be inspired by these stories, guys. Because if you try and do this, you'll die. You know, I mean, I survived because I, I I was very fit and I and I was quite determined and I made some right choices. But I was also bloody lucky, you know. And I've got friends who disappeared, and I'm sure they died alone in crevasses. I think it's I think it's the determination, though, Joe, isn't it? Because yeah, you know, a lot of people could have given up you know that four and a half days of not seeing simon the the lack of food the lack of water the extreme pain there's a lot of people that certainly now whether they would or they wouldn't in an actual survival situation is another matter but they would imagine that that they just couldn't do what you did they couldn't keep going i suppose that's why it's inspiring well yeah maybe but there's two things to that ed i mean um if you took somebody off the street and threw them into a really uncomfortable alien situation they'd freak out you know we'd We've been extreme mountaineers for a long time. And just general rule, being a mountaineer tends to be, do you put up with a level of hardship that most people won't put up with? You know, you've got a four-day climb, you're eating damn all, you're lying on ledges about that wide to sleep, you're often dehydrated, you're doing highly technical climbing. You, you get toughened by that. And you have setbacks in your climbing career. So it wasn't as if we were, but if you drag someone off the street and started to try and do that to them, then and if you took a soldier, sorry, if you took a civilian and put him straight into a war situation like a trained Marine would be, that civilian would just fall apart. So there's a difference in that. The other thing is that serious mountaineers are, are well, almost well obsessed, I suppose. They're, they're quite driven people anyway. They, they don't want to do something easy. They want to try and do a new route. So they've already got advantages. They've already got a mindset that's pre-trained. Do you see what I mean? And, and so I knew when I was coming down that I had a, a whole um, field of experiences that I could draw on to make the right decisions I was talking about. Whereas a person off the street who'd never been in the mountains, as a human being, they will fight to survive. That's why we're the most successful species. But the reason you survive is if you have knowledge. And that person wouldn't have the knowledge and the environment to, to negotiate the crevasses, to, to find a white, right way down through moraines, to pace themselves. To Do you know what I mean? There'd be lots of things that they would try really hard, but they would die because they made lack of knowledge mistakes that eventually just finished them off. But having said that, I very nearly broke on a number of occasions. There were a number of occasions where uh, psychologically I, I was so close to... So close, I can't tell you how close, where you just wanted the pain to stop, the exhaustion to stop, the fear to stop, you know. So it's it's it's, it's not a black and white game, really. It's not. I agree with everything you say. I really do. I, I think you're right in terms of the experience and it being relative. Oh, what I also find interesting about you and the way your mind dealt with it is that you got angry with yourself. And um, I can recognise that in myself, I suppose, is, is why I find it quite relatable too. But I yeah. get fucking furious at myself. <laughs> and um, and that's interesting, isn't it? That you, what what a, a layman might think as a, as a negative um, energy can actually get you through these things, can't it? Oh, absolutely. I, you know... I, the, the layman is just talking out his ass. You know, he's obviously not been in the <laughs> you know, I mean, look, when I was in that crevasse, right, and I was I was spending this just nightmare night, and I was I, I knew enough about my situation to know that, you know, 
I was in really, really deep here. And it was going to end. When I made that decision to abseil Difa, that, that wasn't just desperation. That, well, it was desperation, but it was because I was 25 years old, you know, and um, I'll, tell, I'll tell you what Touching the Void means to me as a title, right? I was brought up as an Irish Southern Roman Catholic, Southern Irish Roman Catholic, and I stopped believing in God when I was 15 and never believed a word since. So I'm probably one of the guiltiest men on God's earth, but there we go. And I always wondered, you know, when, when everything hit the fan, if, if I would break and I'd say, oh, please, I'll say a few hard fathers here, get me out of here, I'll say Hail Mary. And I didn't. Actually, that's one of the greatest things I took out of that experience. I know that my atheism has proven to, to me. But the void to me then was that I was 25. I wanted to climb the world. This was my first big expedition. And it was ending. It was, this was not in the game plan. You know, I was fucking livid about this now that didn't mean that i made sort of headstrong impulsive stupid decisions i thought about what i was going to do everything from abseiling down to to timing myself to testing myself to pacing myself but i did it in an abiding fury <laughs> all the time so that when i fell over and the pain got too much and i was screaming i just thought this is not going to happen i was so angry with with everything with everyone and i don't know maybe, maybe for somebody else maybe if somebody else had some sort of zen calm they would float down on a, on a, on a blanket of their own calmness they're yeah, right <laughs> well i mean i i often say to myself i mean my my amazon story is very 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 incomparable to yours but it's the hardest thing I've ever done. So you, you sort of draw back to those own experiences. But I, I think I could have made my life easier had I been in a more Zen place. I think I sometimes I, I fucking fought myself, you know, in terms of that mental energy. But equally, at other times, I think, you know, it gives you extra, extra depths of, I don't know, some sort of anger force that can just drive you through a situation. So, yeah, who, who knows what's right or wrong? I think it's all about the personality, Ed, as well. You know, you have, just like with climbers, you have fat ones, you have thin ones, tall ones and short ones. You also have people who are really calm or people who, who talk too much or who are egotistical or who are very reticent. And it informs how they behave, just like in anything else. And so you might have somebody who seems on the exterior to be really calm and laid back, doesn't say anything, but can have the most driven, hard interior, you know, just the equal of any mad angry loon that happens to be tied to their rope you know so it's, it's and you'll you, you get that, you'll get that in any group of people i, I can imagine an army situation in, in a in a platoon for example you'd have so many different characters within chalk and cheese they might dislike each other like each other but they would be united together as that platoon and what they're going to do. But each one of those individuals will, will behave and think differently. They might do something collectively in the end, but they're all different characters coming in. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. From this experience, because you've done a lot since um, touching the void, but the first thing you probably set about doing, or one of the things you set about doing over the over the time afterwards, was writing the book. Um, as you were writing it, I suppose a sort of couple of questions in this: was it a cathartic experience? Did it help you process the events? And and did you have any idea that you were as capable as writer as you are, and that it was going to receive the sort of critical acclaim that it has ended up receiving? Absolutely not. Uh, on, well, no, right, on both both answers, absolutely not. Um, I mean, I n- never thought I would be an author, never really intended to be an author. Um, Simon was getting a lot of uh, bullshit criticism from people who should have known better um, about what had happened, you know. Luckily, this is pre-internet days, because today he'd have been slaughtered online within about three milliseconds. But anyway, it was becoming apparent that the story was going around and it was changing and changing and changing. By the time it got back to me, you know, the only thing I recognised about the story was cutting the rope. So John Seamson, a great friend of mine in Sheffield, said, look, let's write, write, write a book. You know, I thought, geez, how do you do that? And um, anyway, I, I managed uh, fortuitously to, to, to get a contract with Jonathan Cape and um, I started writing. I wrote the thing in seven weeks. Right. Wow. <laughs> It was not cathartic. It was, oh, I thought it was awful. I mean, on one level, I mean, I should really say that um, even when I tell a story like I've just told you now, I don't go there. I don't go back there. You know, I don't, I don't really think, like, I don't try and remember how I felt. It, it, and when I wrote the book, I did. I tried to express what it was like. And it was, I, I found it dreadful. And I was writing and working in John's attic. I was living in his house in Sheffield and <laughs> he'd come down in the morning and say, you're all right. And I was making a cough. Yeah, I'm fine. He said, we're screaming your head off last night. <laughs> no idea what was going on when I was asleep. So no, it wasn't cathartic at all. And actually... But maybe, maybe it was then. I mean, maybe that was bringing up things in your sleep that you were then disassociating. You know how PTSD works and people yeah. can't disassociate the memory and the emotion, no? Without you realising... Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think funnily enough, well, actually, getting on to that, actually, funnily enough, years later, 18 years later, I had to go to Peru to, to make the film, okay? And they'd done a lot of the work in the French and Italian Alps and crevasses and ice climbing and all that, but they wanted to go and do the big shot pictures of the glacier and the moraines and, and whatever. And they said, look, uh, can you dress up in your old gear and crawl around and we'll film you because it's a lot cheaper than using an actor. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I said, yeah, good idea. All right, I'll do that. And um, really did my head in, actually. And it really How did you do it? I thought you... Yeah, I did it. Yeah. And, oh, when you see the pit long shots of somebody on the glacier and on the moraines, that's me. And if you, there's some of them by the lake, that's me. And it really did my head in. Uh, and it really surprised me. It shouldn't It shouldn't have done, really. But um, like there was one shot when I was down on the, the, the moraines near the glacier and the film crew were about a mile and a quarter away, you know, a big 600 mil lens on. And I had a radio in my backpack. And I was waiting for the shot to start. And I was dressed up in the same javelin, yellow sarpets that I'd had in 85 because I'm a mean git and I hadn't got rid of them. 
And I was lying there and I had all the things wrapped up. Everything was the same, foot fangs, all that shit. And I just had this weird thing happen. Uh, I, I think it was a panic attack. Um, I've heard people had panic attacks and how bad they were, and uh, I didn't realise how bad they were. Anyway, it was just off the scale. I managed to convince myself that the last 18 years hadn't happened, that I was still crawling down. I was how weird it was. I believed it. And I, I think what happened was I was in the same place, and all around me was this crest of hills, and it triggered it. It just triggered it, and I went slop straight back onto that railway line of 85, right? Anyway, I, I sort of dealt with it. I couldn't tell people at the, the film crew and their safety team because they were all climbers. I didn't want to appear be a bit of a wimp and stuff, and I thought, Christ, you know. Got home, and I was in a really bad way. I'd keep bursting into tears for no good reason. I kept wandering around, feeling I was going to be attacked from behind. It was a weird sensation. Saw a shrink. And he said, yeah, it sounds like it's triggered the trauma, you know, like PSD, TSD does. And he says, you know, he needs some therapy. And I thought, fuck that. And then he, <laughs> Marek, my agent, said, look, you've got this talk to do. And I went, Marek, I, I can't give a talk in public because I'll just crack up in tears. You know, I'll be doing a, you know, no, I can't do it. And he said, you've got to. You're contracted. <laughs> so I went onto the stage. I thought this was going to be terrible. And I started talking, and it was like someone lifted this lead coat off me. It all just disappeared. Just went, poof, disappeared. Oh, whoa. And it never came back, right? And I later did a lot of research. I, I did a, a lot of stuff with an American guy who, who did, wrote a book about PTSD, a Marine who had been in Iraq and Afghan and stuff. And fascinating. And, and you know, one of the best ways of uh, psychiatrists dealing with trauma victims is they make them tell story. And the first time they try and tell it, they get about halfway through and then collapse. Then the next time they get three quarters way through, then three quarters, then they get then they get the whole way through. And they keep making them tell this story until it becomes a fiction and it becomes someone else's story and they've got off that track. I think that's what happened. Uh, so that's that's that side of it. And uh, did I think it was going to be a success? We're getting back to your question. When I finished writing it, I thought, ah, oh, geez, I've been way too emotional here you know because mountaineering books and you know, people were very unemotional very sort of you know oh well that was a character filling day and all this you know and <laughs> it, it just took off just started steadily taking off and it, it, you know 85 plus percent of the readership are non non-climbers so that really says that's, it all. that's extraordinary in itself isn't it yeah it got out of its genre it's completely out of its genre it was less about mountains and you know it could have been in a desert could have been an ocean could have been anywhere it was about two humans having a story and the mountains were just a stage they played it in. I think um, I've, I've lost people, you know, um, who undertake risky activities um, over the course of, of our life. We're both old enough and ugly enough to, to have, to have experienced some, some stuff. Has it changed your attitude over the years as to, I suppose, how you view mountaineering? Do you believe in people taking risks or do you no longer believe in it? No, I absolutely believe in, taking risks i mean i think it's in it's in our dna you know and the reason you know we are where we are is because our ancestors took breathtaking risks all the time look when we set out climbing we knew if you read climbing literature and you're going to climb at a high standard you just read these books and it's just a litany of death it's just and you so you know that this this is a possibility you're not an idiot right but you believe that you're good enough and, and, and whatever, you're not going to make the same mistakes. And, and uh, of course, you are. 
you know, everyone makes mistakes. It's, it's really, you know, making a mistake at the right time is the, is the key. So you have this problem. So after 25 years, 25 friends have died. And, you know, some of them are the closest friends I've had. Some were acquaintances, some were friends. And, and God, you know, you had to more memorials, you know, in your 20s and anybody else in their 20s did, you know. And, and I think because you were still doing it at the time, you know, your first reaction when someone died was how, not why, it was how. You really needed to know because, one, you can understand what went wrong and you could learn from it. You know, you could learn, right, shit, I'm not going to do that sort of thing. So there was, there was sort of that stuff. But it was funny you said this because it was only the other day, yesterday or the day before, I was thinking about, about it. But it wasn't in terms of regretting that they died, you know, they they did it wide open. I I, I wish they were still here, but they, they but it was sunny. It was it, it was age actually, Ed. It was like I would think of someone and think, um, God, he's been dead twenty years. That was twenty years he hasn't had, you know, or thirty years or twenty five years, and and or, or like friends who died when they were sort of eight or nine years older than me, and I thought they were right old gits at the time, and I realised I'm fifteen years older than they were when they died. And that struck me. That struck me. And, and then it, it struck me, well, yeah, and I'm not far off myself. So, But it's just, look, it, I don't think that, that any of these adventures should stop. I think they, they, they say something about humanity in a way that um, playing bloody football doesn't. But do you, do you still take risks or is that, is that not on the table anymore? Well, what happened, Ed, is that... Um, at various points, uh, I knew that I wasn't. You know, I carried on climbing for another twenty-five years after Brew and, and did all sorts of things. I did some pretty serious paragliding and stuff, and got into that for a while. And then, uh, in nineteen, uh, what was it? Nineteen uh, two thousand nine. I went to the Himalayas at a mate of mine with Ray Delaney to do tried a new route on a trekking peak called Meryl on the South Face. It's quite a big face, and Ray didn't want to do it when we got there, and I. We both knew this was pretty coming to the end of our careers, and I thought I'm, I'm going to solo it. So I, I climbed it alone without ropes. Did it in two days, um, two and a half days. Sat on the summit, and there's Everest and Maklu and Lhotse and all these 8,000 meter peaks. And I just thought, you know what? It doesn't get much better than this. I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. And Kathmandu, I sold all my gear. Not even rock climbed since, and I, I missed it for five years. It was like a grief. But I, I knew that the you couldn't start doing something else to chase the buzz. You know, to, I knew there'd be nothing as good as mountaineering was. And if I did other things to try and chase it, you, you just end up just spearing up your own arse in the end. See, see, I agree with you. And I, I, I did a, a podcast like this with Ronald Fines last week. And um, the thing that I asked him that has always sort of, bugged me about Randall Fiennes in a, in a way was what, why are you still doing it you know early 70s and you're still doing it and it's almost like um the itch hasn't been scratched um and and his answer was um it was amazing actually I mean he he, he basically because he he felt he hadn't proved himself to his father by following in his footsteps and being colonel of the regiment he could never actually scratch the itch and that he he always felt like he had to prove himself and to have a seventy-something-year-old person acknowledge that, I thought was quite quite powerful. But I think you're in a very different situation. You you have, I mean, certainly it, it, not just as a mountaineer, but in terms of an author, and you've smashed it. So there is that element to where you can sit back a little bit and go, do you know what? I'm 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 pleased with my life. You know, I'm, I'm pleased with what I've achieved. 
Yeah, it's interesting what you said about Rand. Um, I, I wasn't driven by that, and, and I wasn't driven, and as most mountaineers, British mountaineers particularly, are not driven by wealth and fame because you don't get it. You certainly don't get any wealth, uh, and there's no gold medal to win. And so I was driven by, um, I, I wanted to climb all over the world, but I wanted to do things that other people hadn't done. So I wanted to do new routes, and I wanted to force the boundaries of my physical and mental ability. And that's what I did. And um, but having said that, I, I had other things in my life. I mean, uh, I told you about writing Touching the Void. Well, I've written eight books. I mean, uh, my latest novel has got no mountaineering. It's all about a little kid in the First World War. And that's that scared me more than some climbs. Trying to write that, I found more challenging and more frightening. I mean, I do find writing more challenging than climbing. I mean, climbing, I, I don't need to ask for someone's approval. Go and do it. When you write a book and you put your absolute all into it and then it gets published, you're really vulnerable, you know, because some guy who, who, who couldn't even write his own name on a toilet roll can stand up and go, that's <laughs> you know, and you can't do anything about it. And, and so you, you actually put yourself in a position where you're going to get slaughtered. And so, so I had other challenges other than just mountaineering. Filmmaking, I mean, making the, the documentary of um, the Beckoning Silence on the Eiger, I, I think that's a far better film, actually, than, than the Void film, to be honest. And, and it won an Emmy as well. Going on an adventure like we did in Burma, uh, in Myanmar, I mean, it was a bit of a screw-up in terms of what happened. The BBC and its wisdom says, yeah, yeah, we'll send them out there, right in the middle of the most important election in Burmese history. <laughs> <laughs> Good God. And then it kicks off and there's helicopter gunships and all that going off. But actually, it did too. That probably made it what it was, didn't it? It did. It did. It was a bit of an adventure. I thoroughly enjoyed the time with you and the whole thing, really. I was disappointed in terms of following my father's footsteps and I probably didn't behave that well about that. But that was frustration from years of trying to get this project off the ground. But actually, I came back with a really clear understanding of my father's war. You know, I suddenly saw it the way we did. That If you were down in the valleys that we were walking down, where the Japanese would have been, the Chindits were way better off up that hill. And I, it's suddenly my whole perspective of what his war had been like. And, and you know, out of my father's uh, group, out of 1,650 men, you know, they were only supposed to go for two or three months, and they ended up going for six months. By the end of it, there was only eight officers and 25 men capable of fighting. And the rest had died or had been wounded or had gone out sick with very, very scary, scurvy malaria and stuff like that. But just going to the country with you and Alexis and all that lot, it made it real for me. And, oh, well, you know, that was as much fun as any mountaineering trip I've been on. Well, I, I mean, I totally agree. I loved it as well. I mean, one of the lines that I think I know that you're going to cringe at me bringing up um, was um, I came here to say goodbye to my da, but all I want to do is say hello which I found was, was, was undeniably the most powerful line of the whole series. I mean, as a climber, you, the way you describe everything, it's very clinical, it's very matter-of-fact. You, you do avoid, you know, being overly emotive. Um, did it change your relationship or the way you thought about your relationship with your father? No, it didn't. It was, it was, it, it was said with a... I didn't actually realise I'd said it at the time. It was only, you know, afterwards when I... I but I... It was a, it was an immense regret, actually. Um, I think my father was one of these old school guys, you know, and 
you know, he sent us away to school from the age of eight and, and there was a very great distance between us. I've no doubt that he, he loved us all, but you wouldn't think so. But he didn't, it wasn't someone who you opened up to. He wasn't someone who uh, hugged you or, or uh, you know. And I'll give you an example. I mean, many years ago, and by the time we made the film in Burma, Dar was already dead. So there was nothing I could do about that relationship, you know. But, but the thing is, a few years ago, I can't remember, um, I, I'd got my dad a bottle of whiskey for, for Christmas and I, I happened to have a copy of my latest book. I think it was a beckoning silence, can't remember, and I signed that to him. And anyway, I were in my sister's house and her kids were jumping around and we were in the kitchen and I happened to glance into the sitting room to see that my father was sitting there reading my book. And I went back into the kitchen and, and I said to Sarah, my sister, I said, bloody hell, Dad's reading my book. And Sarah said, oh, he's read all of them. He's immensely proud of you. He tells everyone. Never said a word to me. So I, my regret is I would have liked a different relationship with my dad. But you know what? Tough shit. You know, you don't you don't get it all your own way. So no, you don't. Although it does make you who you are, and you know, and would you have had the same drive in life? Would you have had the same? For example, we were referring to the anger that got you through periods of the touching the void. You know, would you have had that depth? That, I mean, I often think that the hardest things that people go through in life, and you know, having that strained relationship with your dad was invariably a difficult thing for a young person to to go through. Give you the biggest strengths that you've got, don't they? You know, they give you a kind of a deeper um, character almost. Yeah, well, there was a lot of research done. Uh, well, psychiatrists know all this about the formation of um, personality personality in children forms between the ages of um, six and 12 or eight and 12 and it's influenced by all sorts of things like nurturing care and situations that 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 child has been brought up in you know and um, so obviously if if you if you're I'm I'm being very vague here because I'm not psychiatrist so so if you're with parents who are very overprotective over loving that you maybe would become more of a clingy sort of personality uh, if you were someone who was rejected, you would become more of what's called a deviant personality. So I always felt that um, being sent away to school at the age of eight, you know, and the reason my parents did that was not because they were rich, it was because they were in the army and army schools moved every two years. And so it'd be better to be going in the same. So that was the idea. So you get sent away at eight years old. And this is the day there's no telephone conversations with your parents there's no whatsapp there's no facebook there's nothing right you know they're in jails wherever they are on northern ireland you're in some god-awful place in north yorkshire well you know it was only after my mother died and i got all these letters she kept all these letters of, of us that kids had us as kids had sent to her and i read a few of my childish eight nine-year-old letters and all that, I, I had this idea that i had a wonderful childhood and an amazing school that I was absolutely bloody miserable. I was absolutely heartbroken. You know, I, I couldn't understand why I wasn't at my home. And I, I think whatever good there is in the relation, the, the education you get there, I, I think it's seriously damaging. But I think what it does is it makes you into personality. It either breaks you or it makes you into this sort of deviant personality where, you know, you are an island and you 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 are not needy and maybe that is something that when you get in a situation that helps you you know if you're a very needy personality and you're in a situation as in peru you might be going oh someone please help me please help me whereas my sort of personality would go fuck off i can beat you all you know yeah well again that resonates massively with me i mean i was 
both adopted and also went to boarding school like you so I think twice I do, I do think actually earlier than six years old can have a bit of an impact on your personality as well I mean yeah, yeah. It, you know I think you know if from the word go you're given up at birth then you, your personality is going to adapt adapt in order to survive isn't it so um and, I remember um, you telling me this Ed when we were walking along a a road in Burma with mines on either side. Now I was quite gobsmacked actually what you told me. Uh, yeah, that's a double whammy that. <laughs> but you know, I, I don't regret any of it, mate. None of it. You know. No, and I mean, then cause... didn't you you meet up with your family again, your brother? Yeah. Well, yeah. what I always said that Tibetan saying, "Gegani," you know, shit happens, and it's what you make of it to some extent. I know that sounds a bit flippant. I don't mean to be. But no, I, I think it's, it, for me, it's a chapter. It's a chapter in your life. You don't have to keep going back, going back and reading it. No. But it's always going to be there, isn't it? You know? Yeah. Well, that's what, that's what someone said to me about Void. You know, they sort of said, you know, for instance, they said, did you go and get counselling and this and that? And I went, no, no, I didn't. No. Uh, I just put it in a steel box and left it there. And I've, I've never really felt that I want to go and uh, talk about it and open up and really go and tell you what damage it did because it did damage there's no doubt about that I don't need to do that you know because you know I've always thought you know you can't change the past you can't change what has happened if you keep dragging your past along with you into your present you're ruining your present and destroying your future and and that that's that was just my philosophy really and I just thought I can put this in a box and just stay away you know I'll learn from it. I'll learn what I did wrong, what I did right, whatever, and move on. I think that's a philosophy my father sort of had, had to some extent. And um, yeah, interesting. I was looking at your uh, your profile. Your you know that first uh, survival program when you spent three weeks on an island, sixty days. Yeah, yeah. sixty days. Yeah, I remember uh, you were doing this thing where you said it wasn't about surviving; it was about getting to a state where you felt comfortable. Thrive. You yeah, can I could thrive. thrive. That, that was the great thing, I thought, yeah. Because just starving yourself for 10 days, like in Naked and Thrive, and, and, and then saying, I've done it. Well, no, you haven't. You just starved yourself for 21 days. You haven't actually thrived. Very few yeah. times. Well, it, 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 was, it was nice because it was open-ended, but and it was you know up to your discretion as to whether you felt you thrived. But at least it yeah. set that aim of trying to progress things as, yeah. as much as possible, I suppose. Yeah. One of the things that stuck in my mind that you said to me, um, which was a bit of advice, really, that you gave to me because because you're a bit older um um was which is about I, I don't know whether you can remember explaining it or whether it's something that you've always felt but it was a, it was how to stop yourself getting caught up in this endless greed basically um can you remember describing that there was establishing where you want to get to i think was the, the essence of it before you set out and always always remembering that do you remember that conversation yeah i do i do i mean i think i think i think i was you know pe- people under the illusion that you know i I've, I've made money out of writing books i have i certainly haven't made enough to comfortably retire on and live on forever absolutely not at all and, and i made i got an opportunity to do a lot of corporate speaking and i was very successful at it and was very well paid and i started doing it and i remember thinking you know what how much I, I, just set out what you need what, what you want to do right and how much you need so if you thought well ballpark picture if i stop when i got to this if I had a house paid off, if I had X amount of money in the bank, had this and that. If I didn't need to work anymore, why carry on working? Why not use then to decide what you're going to do about you, about your life, about what makes 
your life important and worthwhile. I think that roughly along those lines. And, and I pretty much did that. I got to a point where I was financially secure and I cut right back and cut right back. And um, I know of people who, who uh, get completely caught up in the making money, the people who are on the speaking circuit who, um, who just, uh, just do more and more and more and they'll cut their price and cut this and just do more and more and more. And I remember looking at them thinking, well, why? Why do you need all this money? What is it you're doing in your life that requires this amount of money? I mean, surely you're earning money to, to live your life. So if you've got enough money, go and live your bloody life, mate. You know, stop running around like a headless chicken. But although that, although that sounds simplistic when you say it, it only was simplistic because you had decided at quite an early stage, you know, what what you could live on and what you what you wanted to achieve and I, I just thought that was beautiful because I, I've always you know there is forever that risk that you're just going to want to the next commission the next commission to become more and more famous or more and more successful and and it's just a nice little thing to come back to actually do you know what paying for the paying the bills paying the mortgage ideally paying the mortgage off being able to provide for your family and then and then you've got a, a freedom to make choices based on what you want to do haven't you I mean if, if you are as lucky as I have been and you are to be earning enough money to make those decisions. Most people don't have that opportunity and they just have to work like hell all their lives, you know, but if you do have that opportunity, it's worth thinking about, but it's, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do. Cause I mean, one of the things I did is I just said, look, I don't want to do 30, 40, 50 talks a year. I just don't want to do them. So I sort of refused to do them and they just kept increasing the price. And then you're going, well, look, you know, how can I not do this? They're offering X amount of money, for God's sake, for one talk. And you cave in and do it, and then you feel really guilty as hell when you're coming back to why don't I do that? You know, you just told yourself you don't need to do this shit, and you're going to do it. So I'm as greedy as everybody else, you know. But I think maybe it's just the idea of having an overall plan of what. I mean, particularly you know, you've got your family, your kids, I love the way that you 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 went with them on on that trip to uh, where was it? Where, you, where did you go to? Done a couple actually, but yeah. um, I, t- I took the little boy out to see Laura on the, when she was doing a world first descent in Guyana, um, and he was only eight months old at the time. He couldn't even sit up, <laughs> <laughs> let alone stand. And we were bouncing up this river, you know, on a on a boat with a forty horsepower outboat motor driven by an indigenous tribesman clutching onto my little boy <laughs> this is fucking brilliant um but you know and and who what do you think those indigenous people do with their children yeah well i mean exactly they live out there i mean it's completely normal it only seems abnormal to us obviously um you know because because it's it's not our world is it and um, joe i'm getting to the end of the podcast and there's a couple of sort of um questions that i'm asking everyone really at the moment and um, what what are you most proud of in life Still being here. Okay. <laughs> no, I don't know. Uh, actually, that's not so flippant an answer, actually. But um, um, no, in your, with your story, it's a very, very good answer, mate. I don't know. I'm proud of uh, of living the life the way I chose to live it. I suppose in that you know that I I decided I wanted to go and climb the world and I had no idea whether it would lead to a career or whether I would be impoverished or how I'd do it. But I just knew that if I didn't do it, I'd get to 50 and I'd look back and go, I wish I'd done that. And I thought, don't ever regret anything. And, well, shit, we all regret all sorts of things, but don't regret really big things, you know, like 
you only get one crack at this life. You don't want to regret your life. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me. You tell your story bloody well, mate. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms to get new episodes first thing every Monday. Monday.